you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark 9. We'll be looking at the same text we looked at last year on Father's Day, actually. You know, normally, well, historically, in a lot of churches that I've been involved with over the years, we give gifts to dads on Father's Day, and we give gifts to moms on Mother's Day, but we ain't got the budget for that. But dads, I do want to give you a gift. I've carefully curated two of the best dad jokes I've ever heard this morning, and I'm going to give these to you so that you can be released out into the world with two more wonderful dad jokes. This is better than any bookmark or book or something like that. Let me, the first one is, is this. What did the drummer name his two daughters? Anna one, Anna two. Come on. Second joke. Just remember these, man. These are going to be helpful down the road. These are great icebreakers. Uh, the other one is, is uh, why are there Pop-Tarts but not Mom-Tarts? Because of the pastriarchy. <laughs> Matthew 9, 33. Title this year is actually the same title, more or less, as the text brought to us last, uh, last year. Fatherhood, a, pra- a practical path to greatness. Beginning in verse 33, we see the disciples in Mark 9 headed back with Jesus to Capernaum into what verse 33 describes as the house. This was Jesus' headquarters, so to speak. And so there was a meal coming, to be sure. They were planning to sit down and rest from obviously busy ministry. And verse 33 says, and when they came, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now you'll see, if you're paying attention in the Gospels, you'll see this sort of situation arise around meals. There's no coincidence that the disciples begin to argue about who's the greatest around the time when they're about to sit down to a meal. The rabbinical tradition was relatively explicit in seating charts assigning people where they sat in relation to the master according to their importance. And so the reason that we see them arguing about who is the greatest in connection to entering into a house or at the Lord's table is because this was going to be relevant as folks sat down. Who got to sit closest to the master? And they're arguing about who is the greatest? Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. You know, just, just as a reminder, first point this morning is, is that men really do desire respect. I think everybody really desires respect. But I remember reading in a book last year that there was a sampling of some 400 males and 400 females, and 74% of the men said that if they were forced to choose, they would prefer feeling alone and unloved rather than feeling disrespected and inadequate. And then when they sampled those same number of women, the, the responses came back almost exactly the opposite. And this desire for respect appears to be woven into the very fabric of creation, which I guess is one reason lots of people think 
And in Ephesians 5 and 6, for instance, Paul tells wives to respect their husbands and tells husbands to love their wives. So this idea that men desire respect is evident in the frequent arguing the disciples have over who is the greatest, and it seems to be woven into the very fabric of creation. And because of that, I suppose, the second point is simply this, Jesus is okay with that. Jesus is okay with the desire for greatness. He asked them, what are you arguing about? They kept silent because they were arguing about something they knew or they supposed he would not be pleased with them arguing about <coughs> who was the greatest. But in verse 35, it says, he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. John Piper comments on this verse. What Jesus does here is very profound. He recognizes his disciples' quest for greatness as a good thing that has become ugly and distorted by sin. And instead of destroying the whole distorted thing, he describes a pathway on which the distorted and ugly pursuit of greatness will be radically transformed into something beautiful. Nowhere does Jesus criticize a person for pursuing true greatness or true significance. But of course we see that there's a twist because this is Jesus we're talking about. He redirects them and says, okay, you wanna be great, let me tell you how. Verse 35, he says, if anyone would be first, <coughs> excuse me, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Okay, so you might not have noticed it, but some real tension has emerged. Jesus is essentially telling them, you can be great in the eyes of the world or you can be great in my eyes, but you can't get both. You see that? So if you push and shove and take your way into being first, many people will respect you, but I will not. But if you serve and serve and serve all the way to people thinking maybe you're just a doormat, and if you serve everybody, not just the important people, but even the least of these, then the world won't respect you, but I will. And so Jesus is actually, in prescribing the path to greatness, he's actually also proposing, uh, great in whose eyes? Who would you like to have think that you're great? Because you can't have both. Now, in the, in the world's perspective, there's a way to appear kind of servanty while also being highly ambitious and pushy and so forth. And so it appears from our perspective, you could potentially have it both ways. But trust me, if you set yourself out to really, really serve indiscriminately, sacrificially, being the least of these, being the last in line, the world will not esteem you but Jesus will. So another way to think about this, men, is to say, Jesus is saying it, it this way. You can either appear great or actually be great, and you have to make the choice. You have to make the choice. There are lots of paths to greatness. There are lots of potential ways that an individual can achieve prominence, can achieve success. 
But one thing's for sure, you got to pick one and do it a long time. This is sort of the rule of the outlier. You can't dabble. You can't be a dilettante. You can't, you can't dabble in a bunch of different pathways to, to prominence and to, to greatness and to competency. You kind of eventually, relatively soon in your life, have to pick something and just slog through. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you need to decide if you're ready, willing, over the long haul, to be a servant to everyone. Now, this is not only the path to true greatness as opposed to false greatness, but it's also just dripping with practicality. <laughs> the idea is simple. You desire respect. Jesus is fine with that. He gives you exactly what you must do to be respected in his eyes, and he does so at an extremely practical level. Look at verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay, this is a really big deal. With this statement, Jesus makes Christian parenting a high act of worship. And again, not at all, not at all something which is highly esteemed in the eyes of the world. Not at all a plan for worldly greatness to say my main act of service in this life is going to, be re to receive these children in Jesus' name. Now, obviously, he's taking this child, who's a real child, and it's, it's sort of a metaphor. He, it's sort of a symbol. He's saying this child is sort of representative of everything that's discounted, of the people who are discounted, of the things that are overlooked and undervalued. But it's also like an actual kid. And so we can approach this message from the perspective of parenting and say, okay, I have this incredible practical path to real greatness in God's eyes. Receive this child or these children in Jesus' name. So I want to draw your mind to some conclusions already at this point in what is going to be a relatively short message. The first one is this. Being a great dad is a great thing. Being a great dad is a great thing. We're all enticed into various schemes of greatness. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, be a servant and receive even a child in my name. And one of the amazing things about this passage is we can see repeatedly how God sort of practices what he preaches, because of course he does. Think of all the ways that you could describe God. A handful of us have gone through one or even two systematic theologies studying the attributes of God. And we could spend hours talking about the various attributes of God. And the truth is, is that we only know those things because God has made them known to us. If God didn't tell us about himself, we wouldn't know anything about himself. But then you get to the New Testament and you get to this crowning moment when God says, this is how I want you to know me. And how does he choose men? How does God 
choose to reveal himself in this sort of crowning achievement through Jesus Christ. He's a father. he's He's a lot of things. He's a king and a sovereign, and he's a judge, and he's omniscient and omnipotent, and we could go on and on. But he is more than happy when each one of us wake up in the morning and in Christ say, good morning, Father. He is happy to be known by many as first and foremost a father. And so what we want to always do, especially on Mother's Day and Father's Day, is say, boy, if you're choosing or considering choosing to make fatherhood a main thing in your life, this main act of worship, if you're choosing to make this your deal, if this is what you think is a good idea for a path of greatness, I would say yes and amen. For God himself has chosen to reveal himself as father. The second thing we see just highly practical is that providing and protecting are significant acts of service. (coughs) This word receive here, you know, it doesn't feel supernatural for us. It, 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 It doesn't feel quite right. What does that mean, receive? Well, in the original language, everyone would have had that sense of this is a hospitality word. This is, this, is, this is the idea that someone is traveling and needs a place to stay. This is the idea of welcoming, of hosting. Now, that comes down to two things mainly. What did it mean to receive, to host, to welcome someone in the first century? Well, it meant to provide for them, provide for their needs, and to protect them. There were lots of dangerous things happening in the world, as there are now. And so when you welcomed someone into your home, you were taking care of their needs, and you were protecting them. And, you know, sometimes I think we we overlook pieces of our lives that we spend a ton of our time in, and we just, we just forget how they themselves are consecrated unto the Lord. And so, men, a decent amount of your time is just going to be spent providing for the needs of your children and protecting them. And that is a great use of your time. That's a sound use of your time. That's potentially, as we'll see in a moment, a very worshipful use of your time. It's a great thing to provide and protect. Again, we see God practicing what he preaches. When Jesus teaches us to pray, what does he tell us to say at the very beginning of the prayer? Our Father, right? So this is how he wants us to address the God of the universe, our Father. But then he asks us to pray, and he says, he teaches us what to pray for, and one of the things we ask God for is what? Our daily bread. And we also ask him to deliver us from evil. So even here, God has shown himself as Father, and he goes about doing the work of provision and protection. And it's okay, men, to give a big part of your life to checking those two boxes. Boxes that many people, including your own children, will take for granted, at least through various stages of their life, right? And I always feel like it's my job sometimes on Father's Day to say, 
I'm a dad. I, I, let me just, you dads that are of young kids, they're not going to tell you thank you. They don't understand. So I'll tell you thank you for them, okay? Thank you for providing and protecting. But qualifier, uh, hear this well. Provision for needs is absolutely your mandate. Provision for every potential want. You're going to need to figure out how to mark that and put boundaries around that. And not because your child's going to be spoiled, although that's true. But because there's a third thing that fathers do well, and that is they're present. Right? This is the three gifts of the father. The four gifts of the father. We get to call him father. He provides for us. He protects us, and he's present. And because he's God, there's no managing his own resources. He can do all of that at the same time. You cannot. And so there's this, this on one hand, when I wholeheartedly endorse, provide, protect. But there is a line that you need to be aware of in which you begin to seek to provide for beyond what is necessary and you rob from this other very important category, which is your presence. It's just gotta be super mindful of that. I have seen so many men through the years and this causes great devastation to the church in the long run, who set so much time, not only to providing in the short term, but providing for the long term, that they essentially wind up ceding leadership of their homes and parenting to their wives. And they essentially wind up permanent, permanently acting in a reactive role, where they are simply reacting to the latest thing happening and this trend was set when they, I think, tried to outdrive their headlights and provide too much. And they, 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 they stole from this other column of need, and that's presence. So I want to commend, because God commends provision and protection, but also want to say, but God's also present. And for him, that's no juggling act. For you, it is. Be mindful. But the most important thing as we're thinking about all these practicalities is, man, you have got to get this one part right in the verse. And that is, whoever receives a child in my name. So I would say, get the name right. What do I mean by that? Okay, this is, this is something we can see illustrated in our own church. When someone is, when, when someone is going to have a baby, there's a few of us, and I'm, one of, I'm maybe the worst, who wants to assume naming rights. Like, I have tons of baby name ideas. So, so you have to come with stronger uh, ideas. You know, like, I'm like, no, he's Carl. If that's a boy, you're going to name him Carl. No. Uh, uh, some of us just love to, like, you know, intrude in your baby naming rights, at least playfully. But the idea is, is like, you need to be sure. You need to be sure what name this baby's going to have. Well, in the same way, if you, and this is so key, if you're not explicitly trying to do all of this in the name of Christ, another name will take the name of Christ. And here's the two basic ways this happens. You will either raise this child in your name, 
which means I'm doing this for my glory. I want this kid to reflect well on me in a way that is above and beyond what God would prescribe. And this leads to all sorts of issues, but one of them being sort of like, hey, as long as you're not doing stuff that makes me look bad, I don't really care what you're doing. Or I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to pursue your heart. I'm not going to seek to really know you until you cause a problem big enough to warrant my attention. So one of the challenges is if you don't know, like if you're not clear, I am to raise and love this child in Jesus' name, one of the options that's very likely, one of the defaults that's very likely is you'll raise that child in your name. And this will cause you all sorts of embarrassment as well. And the moments when you need help the most, you won't seek it because you think, well, this all just reflects on me. But the second kind of name that often substitutes for the name of Jesus is, I'll raise this child in their name. What do I mean by that? Well, it's when you make the kid the center of the home. This is also a mistake. When you receive them in Jesus' name, we see that they have a place of honor and we feel great about loving them and providing for them and protecting them, and this is true greatness, but they are not the point. And that's so crucial. It's so crucial to remember this child is here not for the sake of my name and not for the sake of their name. This child here is for the sake of Christ's name. And it turns fathering into functional worship. It turns the whole thing, and you don't necessarily men feel this, and that's why this sermon, I think, matters and why I'm at the same text two years in a row. You don't feel this as it's happening. But if you will just consistently say, why am I doing this? Am I doing this so that they can make much of themselves? Am I doing this so that they can make much of me? Or am I doing this so that they can make much of Christ? One of the things Jesus models here, and this is something we just would wholeheartedly commend to fathers, is one of the ways you can raise a child in Christ's name, receive a child in Christ's name, care for a child in Christ's name, is to teach the child how to serve others. If you look at this passage in a certain way, Jesus is functionally parenting these disciples. They were having a fight in the back of the minivan on the way to Capernaum. And he's not doing the, the, the discipline swipe that many of us have become familiar with. But they're having a fight in the back of the minivan on the way to Capernaum, and he settles the dispute. And here's how he settles the dispute for greatness. He tells them, yeah, it's good, it's good to want to be great in my eyes. And, it, and the way to do that is to serve. He provides for them. He protects them. He's present for them. But he also points them to the meaning of life. And this is the key, guys. Teach your kids how to serve Christ in the same way Jesus is teaching the disciples. Namely, teach your kids how to serve Christ by serving others. Beat that drum over and over and over again. The classic joke in my household is, if you have a problem and you come to me, I'm going to prescribe one of two treatments. These are for my kids. If, if my kids have a problem, they come to me, I'm going to prescribe one of two treatments. First one, keto, and the second one, serving others. 
Those are my two solutions. And at least one of them is really, really for sure right. And the other one might be mostly because I like bacon. Paul Tripp writes, your job as a Christian parent is to do everything within your power as an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer who has employed you to woo, encourage, call, and train your children to willingly and joyfully live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, men. This calling is more important than how they do in school or how positively they contribute to the reputation of your family or how well they set themselves up for a future career or how well they do in sports or in the arts or how well they are liked by adults and peers. These things aren't unimportant, but we must not let them rise to the importance of this one thing, discipleship. Okay. Final point, and this is a biggie. This is the idea of seeing your children as guests who have arrived in Jesus' name. These uninvited, well, some of you invited them. We didn't invite any of ours. We didn't plan for any of our guests. They just showed up. So, so some of you have invited your children guests. Some of you haven't, but they're there, right? They're here. Some of you went a long time without any guests and then had a guest. Anyway, they're here in Jesus' name. What, what does that mean? Well, this means that my act of worship to Jesus is like how I, how I deal with this situation. Okay, if someone super important were coming over to my house for dinner, here's my plan. I, I kind of have a plan. Not that I know anybody like super important, but if someone super important came to me, I, I, this is my plan. I would call Ben I'd be like, hey, I need you to do an all-nighter brisket for me, okay? And I'd call Gracia and be like, I need desserts, right? And I would cook some, but I wouldn't allow this important opportunity to go wasted in two ways. Number one, I realized I, I can't do smoked meats as good as Ben. I can't do desserts as good as Gracia. And this guest deserves those things. And so I'm going to seek help. But there's another piece of it. Like suddenly Ben now has the, 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 a privilege of being a part of this honored occasion. And Gracia has the privilege of being part of this honored occasion. And so I'm sure if I thought about it, I could articulate it better. But it's just this odd thing for parents that we're extremely defensive about this issue of our parenting. And um, I'm not sure I know why that is exactly, but it really gets in the way of serving Christ by caring for our kids. Because it, 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 what's, what it's doing is, is in the very moments when we should be asking for help, we're not. And, and the situation's just too important to wing it. The opportunity is too precious to just sort of raw dog this thing and figure it out as you go. No, like, this is a big deal. And so we ask for help. And this is the beautiful thing about a church. Raising kids is an act of worship. Caring for your kids is an act of service to Christ. 
And so you have all sorts of people in your church who can help you do that better than you can do it on your own. Mostly, mostly the main value lies, and there are so many people in this room right now who have made the mistakes so you don't have to. And so if this is this sacred act of worship, if this is this high and holy calling, if this is the path to greatness, if you really think that, you'll ask for help. And I can tell you confidently there is help to be had. In our church, there is help to be had. There are plenty of people here, like I said, who have, I mean, not to point, there's a number of us who have done at least three different versions of Christian Halloween. <laughs> like, like just as a jokey thing. Like, we, you know, the youngest kid got to dress up, the oldest didn't, and so on. Like, you, you think you could potentially make a mistake? Ask some of us, and we will tell you how we've made it more than once. You also need help with just perspective and knowing, is this a big deal? Is this not a big deal? You need help knowing, like, are you working too much? Are you working too little? You need help figuring out how to have the conversations you need to have with your kids, as Susie described. I love how you used that opportunity to tell your kids what to do. You need all of this insight and wisdom because this is a beautiful, important, great thing. And that means go out and seek help for it. And of course, the same goes for your marriage. It goes without saying that the best thing for your children is to be surrounded by a mom and dad who love each other. And every marriage needs some outside care and counsel and prayer from time to time. And once again, you'll find so many other couples at the church who are able to talk to you who have walked that road before you. The point I'm making is, is that this, this is such a consequential part of life that even for those of us who aren't necessarily fully in it anymore, and maybe for some of us who just, we're not, just don't have kids, every single one of us has a role to play in helping moms and dads perform the sacred duty of receiving a child in Jesus' name. You know, one of the places that we have the opportunity to do that better at the church is just through being, you know, having, having lots more volunteers who are able to do children's ministry when we swing that up again. And so that you, you would see the opportunity to serve in children's ministry and to sit down with a little coloring page with a kiddo and tell them a Bible story, you would see that as this, right? You would see that as Mark 9, 35 a precious opportunity to receive a child in Jesus' name. And there's no reason we can't do that and do it very well as long as all of us in this space say, not do I have kids or do I not have kids, but do I want to be a participant in this beautiful opportunity to receive a child in Jesus' name? So that's really it. Just a simple reminder to moms and dads out there, hey, this thing that you have, it's, it's one of the things that matter the most. Be sure as you're undertaking it that you're praying that God would give you wisdom and insight to see your own motives. Like, Lord, am I, am I 
raising these children so that they reflect well on me? Am I raising these children so that they reflect well on themselves? Or is this really an act of worship? And ask the Lord to do a work in your life like he did in the disciples. You can find that your motives haven't been great, and you can say, Lord, would you redirect my broken motives back to this act of worship? Well, a moment ago, to introduce communion, a moment ago, I said that these greatness arguments seem to erupt, especially around meals. That's true, and it's also true that those same greatness arguments seem to coincide with Jesus making a really clear uh, proclamation that he was going to die for them. It's very interesting to see that, because just before they begin arguing about who was the greatest, in verse 30, look there with, with me if you would, Mark 9, verse 30, we see this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So you have in verse 32, Jesus declaring, I'm going to die. And it says they did not understand. And they were afraid to ask him. And then just a few verses later, they erupt into one of their arguments about who is the greatest. And here is one of the reasons we practice communion every single week. Because confusion about the cross always leads to confusion about greatness. And clarity about the cross already always leads to clarity about greatness. If we want to understand what true greatness is and how to get there, we must consider the cross above all else as God's declarative statement on the path to greatness. Jesus offered himself up in obedience to the Father, falling like a seed to the ground and dying. And then, because he pursued greatness in the Father's eyes, he was raised. And not only was he raised, but he was seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules until every enemy is made his footstool. And today, I hope today is a happy Father's Day for you for the reason I described at the beginning of this message. It's a happy Father's Day because you know that you have placed yourself, you have, you have been placed in Christ, that Jesus has forgiven you, he has offered atonement for your sins, and that now you get to call yourself a son or daughter of the Most High God. And today you get to say, the God who looked at the son and said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, now extends that pleasure over me. So today I hope that that's you. I hope that you can say that. And if you can, you should come and partake of the Lord's table and say, Lord, as I partake of this cup and partake of this bread, remind me of true greatness. Remind me what true greatness is and help me to follow you in that path. But if you're here today and like, it's like, well, I don't really know if that's true. Now, there's a lot of ways you could make this more complicated than it needs to be. 
all you need to really realize is, is you, you, yeah, I'm looking at you, you can't earn God's pleasure. That's a revolutionary thought to a lot of people. That in and of yourself, you can't make God happy with you. And the reason for that is your sins are just too many. And then even when you do good stuff, there's a lot of motives underneath that that you really don't want to know how bad they are. And so you don't have the capacity to earn God's pleasure, but God has given you his pleasure freely through, through Jesus. And so you could place your faith in Jesus today and say, that's how I want to please God, by trusting in Jesus. And now you have a happy father. And you can come and partake of the table as well. Let me pray.